Hey, Jordan, how's, how's it going? What's up? How are you? I'm okay. Um, it's been a difficult weekend. Um, I mean, you know how much of a fan I am of like the royal family, um, yeah. the monarchy and stuff. You're a Windsor head. Yeah. yeah, I love that stuff. Love it. Huge Windsor head. That's right. That's, and that's so what I'm, someone says. Yeah, exactly. Many people say this about me. So I was very just, you know, it was a uh, yeah, tough one. Prince Philip, of course, passing away very tragically this weekend. And it just reminded me that, you, you know, the people that you love, you have to tell them. You have to make sure that they know that you care about them, that you love them. Because, you know, one day someone can be walking around just perfectly healthy, vital looking, youthful. And then the next day they're just gone, just taken away from you like that. And just that, that the death of Prince Philip, just such a healthy looking person and, and the, the tragedy of that, the suddenness of it was just really shocking to me. So it just reminded me to like, you know, give a call to the people that you care about in your life. Make sure that they know that, uh, that you love them because they, they can, they can be tragically taken away at any moment. Yeah. I mean, just a life cut far too short. He was, he seemed very... Yeah, full of life and had many years ahead of him, so it was kind of tragic. But I can only imagine that him and DMX are up in heaven right now doing the Wakanda salute. Yeah, you got RBG up there. Yeah, as well. Hmm. John McCain. Yes. Do you want to keep going? You, I got more. Yeah, I mean, there's a number of who else? Who else do you think is up there? They're all hanging out. Stephen Hawking. Uh, George he's Bush there. Senior. George mm-hmm. Bush Senior. Yeah. They're all doing the they're all doing the salute. Yeah. That's really nice to think about. You know, I was having a it was kind of a dark time coming to grips with this, but thinking about them, all them hanging out in heaven doing the walk yeah. on to forever salute with like Philip Seymour Hoffman and other Rush Limbaugh. Mm-hmm. Kobe Bryant as well. Eddie Van yeah. Halen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's there too. That's nice. That's a nice it's... thought. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm just like struggling to think of like who else has just died recently. Like, Phil Seymour Hoffman. When did he die? A couple years ago. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. Okay. Oh boy. Um. Hey, hello everyone. Hello and welcome. Uh, it is the Insurgents, and you got Rob Rousseau here. Hey Rob Rousseau. Hello. Jordan Ewell is also there. Um. Episode sixty-four. Pretty exciting. Um, we took a little break last week. It was kind of Easter. Uh, had a bunch of stuff going on. Jordan had a bunch of stuff going on. So we took a little break. We're back on schedule now. Oh, I didn't have anything going on. Oh, you had nothing going on. Okay. No, I don't think so. Me. Okay. Yeah. All right. I don't do shit. You know that. <laughs> That's not true. You have like a cool like gaming community. You do some of that stuff. That's something. Um, it is. Yeah. That's, that's, that's it. That's what I was doing. I was gaming. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so we're back on schedule now. Uh, we've got a great episode coming up with uh, Ben Burgess uh, from Jacobin, from Give Them an Argument on YouTube, and of course, author of the book, Canceling Comedians While the World Burns, a critique of the contemporary left. Uh, we had a great conversation with Ben. Solid episode getting us back on track. It's going to be a good one. I feel yeah, good about good. this. I thought so too. I'm excited, excited to read his book. It sounded interesting. Um, 
It's a good one. I hope people stick around. Yeah. Before Ben comes on, Jordan, I know you would want to talk about um, Afghanistan and the, incre- the, the coming deadline for withdrawal from Afghanistan and the conversation around that. Um, let's just let's dive into this. I want to hear your sure. thoughts on this because I know you've got I know you've got thoughts. Let's hear. Yeah, it. sure. So so if people are unfamiliar, the deadline to withdraw as part of a deal negotiated with the Taliban uh, by the Trump administration, I believe last year. Uh, was 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 May first, twenty twenty one. They would withdraw all troops. So that deadline is coming up, and over the past few months, and, and especially the past couple of weeks, we've seen hedging from the Biden administration on whether or not they can actually meet that deadline. And it doesn't look like they're going to. And the Taliban has said, if you don't, we're going to start killing you. We're going to start killing your troops. We're going to start attacking your troops. So just so you know, that's what we're going to do. And there's been attempts to negotiate an extension or another peace deal or something that remains to be seen. What I I think people really need to see through is this desperate rhetoric that we're now starting to see as justifications to stay. Now, Biden has said, okay, we're probably not going to meet the deadline, um, but not he hasn't said definitively. We don't have a clear idea or, or, or path to exit. But he said he can't imagine seeing us there next year. Well, we'll see. Because now we're seeing yeah. things like if we leave, that makes it easier for China to exert control uh, and have more influence over the region. And now just yesterday, CNN ran a story about how it's essential that we stay there to protect women's rights. And yeah. this is a an imperialist illegal invasion that uh, justified or, or not just it was justified on 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 bogus uh, imperialist claims and um, led to hundreds of thousands of people dying. Now, in what way is that empowering for women? Yeah, famously, the two-decade-long uh, military occupation and uh, bombing campaign is famously very good for women's rights, and women yeah. have really women have really been set free under the under the the the, gui- the guidance of uh, of America throughout this period in Afghanistan. Yes, right. Please, let's ask Barbara Lee about uh, women's rights in Afghanistan uh, as the only person who opposed this this invasion. Yeah. Um, and I think it's 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 very very troubling, and I think it spells that we're, it or it shows that we're going to be there for a while longer. And um, also on a broader point, I mean Biden's foreign policy has become increasingly hawkish. There's a pivot to Asia now. Um, yeah. We're seeing now this, this military budget that was rolled out this week, which is a, another increase. But people and and, and consent manufacturers and the press uh, spun it positive positively right. for They're him. trying to sell it as like a decrease in the budget. Yeah, it's well, he hasn't he didn't increase it uh, at the same rate that oh, Trump okay. increased it, which is wow. still an increase on an already uh, ballooned and inflated budget. Um, and on top of that, the our, our, our alliance and support of the Saudis is leading to a potential uh, genocide in Yemen. Now, what the Saudis are doing with the aid and support of the United States is blocking all fuel from entering Yemen. And you, if you've heard me on TYT or on the surfs this week, you know, this is something I'm, I'm trying to get action on. And there's a way you, the listener, can take action. So if you go to endtheblockade.com in 30 seconds, not even that, you can send a letter to your representative and both senators demanding <clears throat> that they, they, they call on Biden to end support of the Saudi blockade in Yemen. Because what, what the Saudis are doing are, is blocking fuel from entering the country. Now, without that fuel, 
the Yemenis can't move medical supplies uh, around the country. They can't transport food. Things are going to waste. They are dealing with another spike in COVID cases. They can't keep power on at the hospitals. Yeah, it's generators and, that are powering hospitals, literally. Yes. Yeah. 400,000 kids in Yemen could die this year. And we are directly responsible for helping uh, set the Saudis enforce this blockade. And members of Congress over the past few weeks have been asking Biden questions. They've been getting no results. They've been getting no answers, no transparency. And it, it, it looks like... Biden basically lied. And instead of saying, oh, we're only going to help with defensive measures, they're actively supporting this. And and without the U.S. support, Bruce Rydell at, at Brookings uh, said, who's no, he, he is, he's a pretty hawkish guy, said without the U.S. support of the Saudi uh, coalition, that whole thing would crumble in about three days. So that's how essential our role is there in, in enforcing that blockade. Um, without U.S. support, millions of Yemeni lives could be saved. So endtheblockade.com takes seriously 15 seconds, 30 seconds tops. You can send letters immediately to your members of Congress. The more we can send, the more pressure is on them to call on Biden to end uh, support of this blockade. Yeah. Um, Canada, by the way, has also been enthusiastic supporters of uh, the Saudi Arabian government while they carry this out. We have been selling them uh, light armored vehicles that they've been using uh, to carry out this like really brutal occupation. Um, so this is something that like all the, the sort of Western powers are responsible for. And, uh, you know, you mentioned Biden's foreign policy in general and uh, like under Secretary of State Blinken, which is something that I think has been even worse than a lot of people were anticipating. Like, I'll definitely admit to being um, kind of pleasantly surprised at at Biden's domestic agenda. Obviously, he's obviously he's not Bernie Sanders, but has shown a lot more of a willingness to kind of reject this austerity mindset. Uh, and go for a bolder agenda than I think what a lot of people sort of anticipated. Uh, certainly even bolder than, than you know, Barack Obama's domestic agenda for the United States, which I think you can kind of support. But the, conversely, the foreign policy, I think, has been a complete fucking disaster so far. Uh, and you mentioned the, the sort of uh, Afghanistan um, withdrawal, which is which they're getting cold feet on and will probably not end up happening, despite, again, a, a multi-decade long occupation there. The support for um, this blockade in, in Yemen, uh, the un unwavering, unflinching support for the Israeli government uh, and their, their actions in the West Bank and Gaza, uh, increased saber rattling towards China. They've been they've been increasing their saber rattling towards you know Central and South America like the Blinken called out uh, uh, Bolivia Bolivia for like having the uh, temerity to you know enact some kind of legal consequences for the right wing coup leaders who took over the government uh, and then committed multiple massacres of of working class and indigenous people in Bolivia um, and that's a big problem for for the Biden administration and, and Secretary of State Blinken um, so it's as much as I'll be willing to give Biden some credit. Um, for this kind of ambitious uh, domestic agenda that we've seen some um, so far, which is, you know, no. with a grain of salt because it's <laughs> coming from Joe Biden. It, ambitious, it might be doing a lot of work there. Um, but still, I think it's been better than what a lot of people anticipated. But I think the, from the foreign policy standpoint, it's been even worse than what a lot of people anticipated. It's a lot of what ifs and it's a lot of commissions. It's a lot of studies. It's a lot of maybes. Um I don't, Biden's not really doing much. The big, I mean, the only real piece of legislation, the only thing he's actually accomplished so far is the COVID relief bill, which didn't include the minimum wage component, which has already reduced stimulus amount, which also didn't include um, any sort of, uh, you know, public option component. So 
it was it was a compromise on a compromise on a compromise, and now we're not going to nuke the filibuster. Um, you know, hand wringing over student debt cancellation. He's not even talking about the public option anymore. Uh, that's yeah. definitely not going to happen. So nothing's he's not really doing he's not really doing much uh we're still seeing kids in cages at the border but now people think it's great because they're in tarps they're sorry there's kids in tarps at the border which is fine i guess um but just you know overrun uh way over capacity and it's in a hawkish foreign policy and now a pivot toward a new cold war um it's yeah i feel i feel pretty content in not voting for the guy yeah well you mentioned the last time we talked about this to how important the pro act would be and how that would be such a vital uh, <clears throat> uh, piece of legislation for, to get for, to get behind it's past the house in the United States. And it's going to the Senate where obviously it's not going to pass without some kind of uh, adjustment to the filibuster. And now Joe Manchin has come out and he put in an op-ed recently saying he's not going to support any, any change to that whatsoever. So it's pretty much safe to assume that like any, any pretty much any part of the Biden agenda is dead on arrival in the U S Senate, uh, as long as that's not touched. And that's the kind of thing that like, as much as, as prominent liberals and supporters of Biden are going to point to Manchin as like the excuse for why nothing can happen just as they did, you know, 10 years ago go with like joe lieberman uh in, in the obama era but like that's not really an excuse like i refuse to believe that if if i wanted to get this stuff through if he wanted to get it done then he wouldn't be allowing this one senator to hold up his whole agenda um there and there would be something that he could do about that so you have to kind of assume that if by if joe someone like joe manchin is just basically allowed to unilaterally um bypass the, the whole rest of their domestic agenda they I mean they can't really support it all that much if they're kind of letting someone in their own party push them around like this yeah use the bully pulpit um you saw how he reacted when kamala went to west virginia and made the rounds um do that again i what what is what is stopping you so uh, if, if they wanted to do it, they would, but it's a convenient excuse because they don't really have to do anything. Um, then they can just throw their hands and wait till uh, everyone focuses on midterms. So yeah. nothing's really going to happen. Nothing's going to change. Well, that doesn't sound too great. No. <laughs> not my not my most uh, nuanced analysis there. I mean, just that's what we've <laughs> been saying good. over the last couple of weeks, though. It's just that you know they have two options here. They can they can get rid of this stupid fucking archaic uh jim crow era parliamentary rule that's that's impeding them from like instituting the rest of their agenda and you know ram through a really popular uh domestic agenda that would really help a lot of people and would probably lead to them uh being successful in coming election cycles or they could not do that and get absolutely rinsed while the republicans just kind of bide time and talk about cancel culture or whatever bullshit um and it's just gonna it's just gonna play right into exactly what they want uh, if they don't make a move to do that so and if that's the way that that's the way it's going then uh that does not spell good things for i think any of the possible positive uh possibilities that were that were uh, maybe shaping up in this administration um yeah i agree <laughs> um oh everything sucks here we are again here we are again whomever could have predicted that uh that this is where it would be um you know what let's let's bring on ben burgess uh because we we talked a little bit a lot of this stuff like on the peripheries with ben and, and he has some interesting points about all this stuff let's bring him on and i just wanted to give a plug also for people to subscribe over on Substack. We have not really been hitting this that much. I think when we started doing this show, the pandemic kind of scuttled a little bit of our plans of what we were kind of hoping to do. I think we wanted to put up more content. Um, 
and have more premium episodes. It's been a little bit difficult to figure this out um, in this kind of pandemic world uh, where there's a lot less time and, and, and space to do that. I know you're very busy with your career stuff. I've got a lot of stuff going on. We are planning on starting to do more uh, premium content for the Substack subscribers. So we don't mention it a lot, but please uh, consider subscribing over on Substack um, and get access to the premium content we're going to be doing uh, from here on out. That was a good plug. Yeah. But I'm very professional yeah, when it comes to I, this I kind of stuff. We just felt kind of bad like asking people to subscribe uh, early on, so we just didn't really push it that much. We no longer feel bad. Yeah, I don't feel bad at all anymore. <laughs> I feel fine about it. I, I I kind of figured this out, and it's not it's not an issue for me anymore. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> let's we, bring on ben, ben Burgess. Yes. Uh, I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. Thanks again to Ben for coming on, and he'll be joining the show right after this. Now we are joined by Ben Burgess, a Jacobin columnist. He's the host of Give Them an Argument uh, on YouTube, and he's the author of the new book, Canceling Comedians While the World Burns, a critique of the contemporary left. Ben, thank you for joining the show. Thanks for coming on. How's it going? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Now, Ben, you know, we like to jump right into the Right into the serious discourse here. Yeah. Um, I hope you're ready for that. Mm-hmm. All right, let's do so it. So we've got one question that we launch every conversation with, and this is what we want to know. Ben, are you a gamer? <laughs> it's serious. Yeah. 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 Uh, very much not, although I guess slightly less not than, than would have been the case. Uh, really, actually, just like a few months ago. So, Okay. You're kind of a gamer centrist. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm a gamer. I occupy the sensible center on the gaming issue. Okay. The gaming question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I. so, I, like, honestly, uh, for the longest time, I mean, the, the answer is still no, right? But, like, uh, for the longest okay. time, I basically didn't game, like, whatsoever. Like, that was actually, like, probably the weirdest thing about me as, like, a kind of you know North American white guy in my age category and everything that you know that I, I sort of stopped uh, I sort of stopped playing video games you know as, as like an early teenager uh, but uh, but I I will admit that I I have um, I have started like just a little bit again lately oh okay so what are you playing uh, so um, I actually got uh, not primarily for the purpose of gaming. Uh, but primarily for the purpose of getting to like pseudo see a couple friends during the pandemic, I got a a, a VR headset, and um, and the the other day, you know, on my birthday, I was going to force myself not to work, so I I played uh, a little bit of uh, Walking Dead Saints and Sinners. Okay. So it's it's like a uh, you know it's what it sounds like. It's like a VR like zombie game when like the ruins of New Orleans. Oh, got it, got it. So you went from not gaming at all into like a VR thing. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of an interesting Yeah, I guess I guess uh, some extreme swings there, but um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean again, I, I got this headset primarily for the purpose of um, of being able to uh, to have some like 
sad halfway simulacrum of of getting to like go see movies with my friends <laughs> you know well we can't actually do that because of covid yeah very nice well that's cool jordan you playing anything new or you're still on you're still on magic oh i'm always on magic uh doom eternal is probably the other one i'm playing through the dlc of doom eternal that's okay very frustrating but fun at the same time it's great cool i recommend I am making my way through Borderlands 2, and I just started a new playthrough of Disco Elysium. I got the Disco oh, yeah. Elysium Final Cut, the full voice version. Stream. Yeah, yeah, watching your stream. Yeah, I was watching stream. That's right. Pretty cool. The subversive Rob Rousseau show on Twitch. Yeah, exactly. It's the, it's the world's most Everyone, subversive stream. Everyone knows it this. It is. Everyone's talking about it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, that's the gaming update. That was uh, that was informative. <laughs> and that's and the show for today. Thank you, yeah. everyone, for joining. Yeah, that's all. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a quick hit. <laughs> <laughs> this is like the quibby of podcasts. It's just a little in and out right away. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> ben, um, the new book yeah. is "Canceling Comedians While the World Burns: A Critique of the Contemporary Left." Uh, comes out May first. Um, that's why we wanted to bring you on the show today to talk about this. Why don't you tell us about this book? Why do you want to write this book? Um, what is this? What is this all about? What is your What is your critique of the contemporary left that you wanted to get across in this book? Yeah. Uh, so this, um, you know, I I started writing the book um, a while ago. Like I had, uh, you know, like the the proposal written up in uh, in the fall of 2019, uh, and and I more or less had it uh, had it written by by the spring uh although i i think in in some weird ways uh by the time i got it written some of the stuff that i was frustrated by had actually uh had actually gotten worse partially you know partially because of the pandemic and everybody spending way too much time in line stay you know inside staring at their computers um but uh but i i think that like the main impetus, I mean, I, I can kind of talk about like a few sort of specific incidents that were on my mind uh, when I was when I was writing it, uh, but is a frustration with, I think, a cluster of things that uh, that the left does that make it harder for us to uh, to win and make it harder for us to uh, to to reach, you know, all of the people that we need to win over in order to accomplish any of our you know goals. And uh, and I think that one of the big claims of the book is that what all of these have in common is that they are symptoms of an approach to politics that's less about what the left is supposed to be about, right? Like what anybody with 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 lefty or socialist politics says they're all about, which is. Um, you know, critiquing structures and institutions and trying to change material conditions on the ground and is in practice much more about a kind of moralistic approach to politics where you're very concerned with signaling your individual um, protest against the conditions around you and in interrogating whether other people are showing uh, showing the right the right level of, uh, of commitment. So I think that this shows up in a, in a pretty wide variety of contexts that I try to talk about uh, through uh, throughout the book. Uh, but it's uh, but it's it's the, like what all of them have in common 
is that none of these behaviors really make sense if you think the goal is to convince as many people as possible so that you know the workers of the world can uh, can overcome uh, the uh, the existing system. Uh, but they all make a, a lot of sense uh, if you think that the goal of politics is to lodge a kind of symbolic protest, is to take a stand uh, and then to make sure that everybody else is, you know, who says they're taking a stand is taking uh, is taking the right kind of stand. So, like, I often think of something that uh, that Adolf Reed said in an interview a couple of years ago where he said this is just too Protestant an approach to politics to him, that it seems to have, you know, way too much to do with, like, trying to figure out who's going to heaven and, and who's going to hell. I guess it's kind of it must be a little bit of a tricky line to walk right now because like cancel culture has now become this kind of right wing meme where like with all the terrible things happening in America and all the ways that they've been conservative movement has been very complicit in like allowing a lot of these social problems to fester. And it seems like they've kind of latched onto the idea of cancel culture just as kind of an extension of their obsession with, you know, being PC or whatever. It's like it's it's just it's it's very warmed over sort of conservative dogma. Yeah. and, Um, And they'll call anything that right. Like, yeah, like that this is this is a concept that, you know, I think I feel like especially in the last few months uh, has been extended on the right to to the point where like it it really loses, you know, I I think the uh, the meaning that it would otherwise have. Uh, like, you know, like when you talk about, you know, Dr. Seuss being canceled and stuff like that, like at, at that point, I almost literally don't know what that means. <laughs> but um, but then again, of course, uh, I would also say that uh, that anything that you can't like, if you can't talk about things because the right is going to talk about them in a stupid way, then that's going to really limit the range of things that you can talk about. Yeah, of course. And and I'd, I'd also well, actually, I, I guess I'd just make two two points about that, right? About the sort of rights weaponization of this stuff. Uh, so one of them is that the uh, that of course you're absolutely right that none of this stuff, right? Like neither the sort of left manifestations of cancel culture, and I'm picking my words carefully there because you know it's cancel culture is not a phenomenon of the left i would actually argue that cancel culture is a phenomenon of uh, neoliberalism that you know it's something that happens in a society uh where people are incredibly atomized and they often feel most connected to other people online where people uh know that they don't have very much control over their lives and you know and, and so often sort of shaming and piling on others uh is a way of feeling like they're in control of something uh, where you know social media companies are for profit and they have every incentive in the world to encourage our worst impulses, and not least where most people uh, go to work in non-unionized uh, workplaces uh, where they're incredibly precarious and like the threat of being doxxed, for example, is a huge deal. Uh, so I think that these trends impact everybody, right? Like this is not this is not unique to the left. This is something that. Uh, impacts the entire political spectrum. So an example I often think about uh, comes from John Ronson's book, So You're Still Being Being Publicly Shamed, uh, where, you know, he talks about this girl, Lindsay Stone, uh, who uh, worked for, uh, this is written in 2015, it happened, you know, a couple of years before that. Uh, She worked with this organization that uh, worked with uh, adults with learning disabilities. And by all accounts, she was very good at her job. But, you know, she and her coworker, Jamie, often when they're on their off hours, they take uh, jokey pictures of each other. 
you know, kind of irreverent pictures and post them to uh, Facebook where like 20 people would see them. Uh, and so there would be one, for example, I think Lindsay took of Jamie, you know, smoking in front of a no smoking sign, stuff like that. Uh, and one of them, they were at Arlington National Cemetery and uh, Jamie took a picture of Lindsay in front of the sign that said silence and respect, pretending that she was shouting. Uh, and uh, because I guess they weren't careful about their privacy settings, uh, this somehow got out. And uh, and there was a giant online pile on about it. There were like 10,000 people in a Fire Lindsay Stone Facebook group uh, talking crazy. about how she was like a fat feminist who shouldn't be allowed in the country and should go to hell, you know, for you know, disrespecting, you know, the, uh, the you know, dead veterans. And um, and she was fired and you know, her life was really destroyed over it, you know. And, and I think that's like a pretty classic example of the kind of thing that people are typically talking about when they talk about cancel culture that comes from the right, you know, from conservative, you know, patriotic veterans. Uh, but I think that the manifestations of cancel culture on the left, um, along which are part of, but not all of, you know, what I'm complaining about in the book, uh, are are things that it's it's very easy as a leftist to to sort of take this attitude towards them, where you say, look, this is annoying, it's stupid, I wish people wouldn't act like this, but whatever. We live in a world where poverty and imperialist wars and police violence and union busting and all these other things exist this is just not a priority i'm just not going to worry about it which you know to be honest was more or less my attitude for a very long time uh but i think that it's i think that's a mistake for a couple reasons uh and one reason that's particularly relevant to your question is that sure as like a you know people having a thousand strangers yelling at them online or trying to get them fired or even successfully getting them fired uh, is like a fairly minor thing in the sort of litany of, you know, of horrors in our world, right? You know, it's, 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 it's very down, low down the list. Uh, but the thing mm -hmm. is, the left acting like this, I think, is very bad and very important uh, because it makes it harder for us uh, to appeal to all the people that we need to appeal to in order to take on all of those those much bigger problems. Like so, just like one quick example. I know this has been a long answer, but uh, but one quick example that I would give, uh, would, which I talk about in the book, would be uh, what happened uh, last uh, last year during the Democratic primary uh, when Joe Rogan kind of sort of endorsed Bernie Sanders in a very stone Joe Roganish way. It's like, oh yeah, man, I, I think I'll vote for Bernie Sanders. You know. We're we're actually gonna have to beep that name out when you repeat how this because that's how how, that's how dare you mention that yeah. guy's name here? That's disgusting. Terrible. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and, and like lots of yeah, there was all this controversy about oh my god, Bernie Sanders accepted the endorsement of this terrible person, Joe Rogan, and you know, granted, lots of that was was ginned up by bad faith actors, by supporters of other candidates, but. I'm sure if Joe Biden or Pete Buttigieg or someone had been endorsed by Joe Rogan, they would have immediately said, no, no, thank you, sir. Yeah. <laughs> Bernie, should, Bernie should have, Bernie should have taken this. the high road and yeah. gotten endorsed by Rick Snyder, the <laughs> governor, former governor of Michigan, uh, who, who poisoned fucking Flint residents. That is what yeah. you're supposed to do. No, that's no, that's exactly. how we build that's called that coalition building. So. Totally. Exactly. Right. Totally. Right. So it's like all of that's like cynical and disgusting. But uh, what bothers me more, because like I kind of expect centrists to act like that. Uh, what bothers me more was seeing like how many people who had the like democratic socialist rose emoji in their Twitter handles who were like, oh, yeah, now that really is bad. Bernie shouldn't have accepted that endorsement, uh, <laughs> which 
is something that that really disturbs me. I think this gets down to like the core claims of the book, because if the point of politics is to change the material world, if that's the point of any kind of left project, uh, then having somebody like Joe Rogan, who's kind of all over the place, you know, he has some good views, he has some bad views, he, he'll he'll have the worst people in the world on his podcast and he'll nod along with them. He'll have Cornel West on his podcast and he'll nod along with him. He, uh, uh, you know, he, he tends to affably agree with whatever people are telling him. He often believes in conspiracy theories. He sometimes has like really positive views, like when he was ranting about Trump's immigration policies or when he's arguing with Dan Crenshaw about health care he sometimes you know he sometimes has really bad views but somebody like that and you know who honestly i think is probably more like a lot more americans than we might like to admit uh insofar as he maybe has political instincts and and political responses to things but he's you know more concerned with psychedelics and mma and a hundred other things than he is with like thinking about it all enough for for those political impulses to gel together into a worldview. So somebody like that who could land in any number of different places says, oh, yeah, I like you. I'll support you. He doesn't ask for anything in return for it. You know, it's not like there was some sort of process of negotiation whereby Bernie gave up, you know, his position on something uh, to do this. And not least, you know, he's the world's most popular podcaster and he has a vast audience of basically apolitical people. Uh, if your goal is to change the world, somebody like that supporting you is is fantastic. That's great news. Uh, mm-hmm. If your goal is to um, is to show that you have all the right commitments and the right affiliations, and uh, and that you are aligned with the good, with all the good people and none of the bad people, then it starts to make a little bit more sense how you could see yourself as being like contaminated, you know, by a bad person supporting you. Yeah, exactly. It was it was completely bogus, and I just had a lot of friends fall for that shit. Um, it, uh, I, I mean, I had a friend who also worked on the campaign who was in the video team and said that like the harassment that she got from people that she knows personally over that was was absurd. I mean, she was she broke down in tears uh, talking about it because this is just like people were taking it out on staff and just like some guy. And this was this wasn't even when Bernie was talking to him. It was just on another episode that Joe Rogan had even said that led them to like be harassed by people who profess to be acting in good faith and actually care about the betterment of society. Their 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 response was to harass somebody who was completely unaffiliated with any any of it. Uh, and it's just like it's like it's it's complete bullshit because Bill Clinton's a fucking rapist and and uh, Obama's a war criminal and and Joe Biden's a fucking rapist. So like, what do you want? What 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 is your what's your what's your goal here? And it's what it's exactly what you say. It's to suppress a guy who had appeal with apolitical people. He was able to activate people who were typically just disengaged with politics because he represented a change. And what the Democratic Party doesn't represent is is change or any sort of uh deviation from the status quo so that he was able to do that and reach people who typically didn't care it, it threatened that power center so they had to act and this was an effective cudgel i there's a prominent listserv i, I might have talked about it on the show before but there's a prominent prominent like liberal progressive ish listserv uh that you know hundreds or thousands of of people are on and it's a lot of like org folks and activists and whatnot and when that happened i don't think i've ever seen it that active before it was, uh, you know, hundreds of, of emails 
in a span of a couple days. And the conversation, these are people who run organizations or high up at political organizations in DC and around the country, democratic leaning uh, entities. It got to the point where they were comparing this to the rise of Hitler and saying uh, it's no different than if, if, if David Duke endorsed a Democrat. That was the fervor and the hysterics that that discourse had reached. And all of it was disingenuous. It was, it was completely uh, uh, insane. I, it's it's very frustrating. Yeah, right. Because because uh, you know because we all we all remember when uh, when Joe Rogan uh, invaded <laughs> Poland. Yeah, that was problematic. <laughs> to be fair, that was. Yeah, no, no, that was bad. I not, don't really... That was not good. That was not a good look, as they say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do better, chief. <laughs> you know, rethink this. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, it's like you're saying. Also, it's like. Um, it's not a problem for prominent liberals to take endorsements, not just from like political ghouls like Rick Snyder, but people in the media like Howard Stern or people that have a long history of <laughs> troubling or problematic views or statements. And we all sort of understand that they don't you know, implicitly endorse every single person that per- every single thing that that person has said throughout their careers. Uh and you can see why that 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 was not the benefit of the doubt was not given to Bernie in that situation. But I think that what you're pointing out is very worthwhile, which is that it wasn't just liberals that were just in bad faith piling on, but it was people like Bernie supporters that were like agreeing with them and adding fuel to that fire. Which is in hindsight, yeah, it seems a little bit ridiculous that people were spending their time doing that. Yeah, and like like Howard Stern uh, is a really good example because like you know Hillary Clinton after. The whole Rogan thing uh, went on, uh, you know, went on Howard Stern, and nobody who was nope. who was you know, there was there was no peep of, of anything about her very having a very friendly conversation uh, with uh, with Howard Stern, uh, and and I think that's I think that's revealing uh, because centrists, you know, God love them, actually. Um, like actually do have kind of a killer instinct you know it's like they 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 know you know that uh that they don't they don't benefit from um you know from from jumping on you know their people over uh, over stuff like this uh whereas a lot of people on on the left really haven't internalized the idea that they could uh that they could win and and acting like this uh is is really detrimental to that so like i'd, I'd give um like I, I put this in like a, a historical context, you know, because I, I think that something like the Bernie campaign, where like the left actually had like a real shot at uh, winning some sort of political power, is like a very recent development in American history. Like if you, you know, I, I often think about like what my friend Daniel Vestner will say about you know Chomsky, who you know I love Noam Chomsky, I think he's fantastic, but. Uh, if you read Chomsky, there's never a point where he's like, oh, here's how like a future socialist government should handle this foreign policy thing or whatever, uh, because he's Chomsky's, you know, coming up at a time, a generation where it's like that would have sounded so fanciful. It would have just been silly. Uh, and, you know, that's totally understandable. But I, I also think that the problem is that because, you know, the left spent so long in the wilderness uh, totally exiled from any kind of like shot at real power, um, people got very used to thinking of of the purpose of politics as just kind of taking a stand. You know that there's there's no real belief. You know that there's going to be a breakthrough there, and I I think that we've we've still got a lot of those bad habits, and I think that that came up in that you know Rogan situation and in a lot of other things that I talk about in the book. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, uh, in, on that Howard Stern thing, not to belabor the point, but just look in, in totality. If you were to zoom out, the, the the frustration that people profess to have with the with the Joe Rogan incident was that Joe Rogan uh, was anti-trans, which that's bad. Uh, you should you should welcome uh, trans people and accept them for who they are and respect their identity. That's great. Uh, what Bernie doesn't have is a a checkered past on uh, marriage equality or or identity or anything like that. Uh, Bernie opposed his Medicare for all plan the, would have been amazing for trans Amer- for trans people in America. It would have been life saving med- medical care for trans people in America. Yeah, but e- even going back to the eighties, like Bernie was 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 standing with. Uh, trans activists in Burlington. They, they, he was a prominent and, and re- regular figure at, at Pride events going back to the 80s, while uh, Biden and the Clintons, you know, championed things like the Defense of Marriage Act, which reinforced a, a uh, opposite sex marriage, uh, prevented any federal recognition for marriage equality, uh, and certainly benefits um, for any uh, any same-sex couples uh, that would have uh, also disproportionately uh, impacted trans people as well. So uh, as 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 they're making this claim, it's just like they very recently became hip to something Bernie had been doing for decades. So to make that claim, which is another instance of how disingenuous it was and how meaningless uh, their 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 cries were. Yeah, and and I think that's like why we didn't look at that and say, oh hey, Joe Rogan who. You know, he said better and worse things about it. I mean, he's the man has done like many hundreds of hours on the radio by his own account, a lot of them high. Uh, so, you know, so he said a lot of shit over the years, you know, uh, and, and some of it has been really stupid. Uh, some, of, you know, some of it's been good, you know. So uh, there are certainly offensive things that Joe Rogan has said about that issue. Uh, but it's also like, why? Why is it that? Oh, hey. This is good. This is progress. Joe Rogan, who you know has uh, has a very imperfect record on on, on trans issues, uh, just endorsed the most pro trans candidate in the race. That's great. Like you mm-hmm. know, like like the yep. fact that it's not that it's oh Bernie Sanders is contaminated, you know, by by <laughs> by the support of of somebody who's sometimes made bad and stupid you know statements about trans people. Uh, really does seem to me to signal an approach to politics that's much more about moral evaluation of individuals than about trying to change the material world, you know, because it's like, which 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 are you concerned with? Whether somebody's history, you know, like what somebody said about this in the past makes them a bad person, which I guess by the transitivity of badness, you know, makes, makes Bernie Sanders a bad person, even though he does not have that history whatsoever. Uh, or are you more concerned with, like, actually... Uh, making sure that uh, trans people can't be discriminated against and that they need the health get they, they get the health care they need. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. So what do you make of the po- sort of post-Bernie period for the left? Because I think that was one thing that, even though there were hiccups, like written bumps in the road, like we're pointing out, it was kind of interesting and exciting to see the sort of American left all kind of pulling in the same direction and internationally as well. Cause you know, I'm Canadian and there's many people in Canada and internationally that were very, very excited about the prospect of a Bernie presidency. It would have been like a huge, huge victory for the international left. Uh, and it did feel like all these different disparate groups who don't always agree on everything. were kind of pulling all in the same direction 
throughout that period, which was kind of nice uh, while it was going on. Uh, and since Bernie dropped out of the race, it's been pretty much the opposite of that. And it, I've seen it seems like this this big coalition that had been assembled has become very fractured uh, and is subject to a lot of the sort of infighting that's plagued the last for for decades uh, and factionalism. And like, do you think is the sort of culture that you're talking to is I mean, is that do you think you have you noticed some of that? in this post-Bernie period affecting the this former Bernie coalition? Oh, yeah. I mean, most definitely. I mean, I think even as early as the summer, um, you know, I, I think we I think we saw a fair bit of that in some ways. Uh, so something I, I talk about at the very end of the book in an appendix uh, is like the the incident where uh, where Adolf Reed uh, was was kind of disinvited, you know, by, by New York City DSA. Uh, and and I think that was you know, very telling for like for like some of what was going on even then, uh, and especially I think uh, since the since the general election. I mean, I was I was talking uh, to uh, you know David Griscom about this last night and kind of bemoaning it. You know, but I mean, I, I think that because the Bernie cam, you know, the two Bernie campaigns had this kind of gravitational pull that anybody on the left who had the slightest instincts for like wanting to actually be a force in real world politics uh, was was pulled into supporting uh, the Bernie campaign, even lots of people you wouldn't necessarily expect to, you know, even people who sometimes had a history of, of not really being interested in electoral politics at all. Um, and so I think in this whole period from like 2015 to 2020, you know, things really did seem to be on the upswing that, you know, the 2016 Bernie campaign even though, of course, you know, Hillary Clinton won, but I mean, Bernie Sanders won 22 states, uh, which was remarkable, and certainly nobody, very much including him, uh, was expecting that. I mean, if you go back and, and look at the old footage of uh, of when Bernie was announcing for the first time in 2015, he's literally talking to like maybe 20 reporters uh, just outside the Capitol. He has his speeches like written on a piece of paper that's folded up in his pocket. The first thing he says <laughs> is, you know, I probably won't have time to take very many questions, you know. Uh, and and then uh, and then he won 22 states. Uh, it was remarkable. It it, it really. Um, it made, you know, being a, a socialist or at least a, you know, whatever, Berniecrat, uh, feel like it was like a force or an option in American politics, you know, which, which was transformative. Uh, you had uh, the rapid rise of, you know, DSA from being a mailing list of a few hundred people uh, to, to being a, a really, you know, real organization with many tens of thousands of members. You had the squad being elected in 2018. And then all of that seemed to be culminating at the beginning of, of 2020 when, when Bernie won the first three states. Um, and, uh, and I mean, I, I can, God, I mean, I, I can remember, you know, being uh, being in Nevada, you know, I mean, I, f I flew in at the uh, at the tail end of that, you know, to canvas for him just before the caucus and like, um, you know, was uh, and like that night, you know, just, you know, was, you know, was very high, you know, on, on, on legal Nevada weed and uh, uh <laughs> You know, and having some good food, you know, with with friends and, and, and it just it just felt like, you know, this is this is the most happy, you know, I've been about politics in my lifetime. Uh, and then to see that crash apart, you know, I think is demoralizing in itself. But I think that the bigger thing that you're pointing to uh, is that it's like that everybody was more or less pulling together, right? Like you're always, you're always going to have like a few marginal sectarians, you know, who don't get with the program, but like by and large, right. Everybody 
was on board with that because it, it did exert that kind of gravitational pull. Uh, whereas since then, we've been in this situation where there is this much larger than anything that existed five years ago, American left, but it sort of doesn't know where to go or what to do with itself. And then I think all of these pre-existing problems that I'm talking about in the book uh, have really been exacerbated by that. Like, I mean, look at the way that people were were ready to uh, to eat each other alive a few a few months ago over forced the vote. Oh, it's a topic we love talking about here. We yeah we, yeah, we yeah, love yeah it. people love when we talk about it too. <laughs> <laughs> people got really upset at us at our at our very forceful stance of being like, eh, I don't know about this. I'm not so yeah. sure. People got very. <laughs> it's like very if you want to do this. that, here are the many ways uh, that you could you could do that if this doesn't work. And how how dare we? How dare we even suggest that there's multiple ways to accomplish something in Congress? Yeah, and, and, that, and that's the thing, right? Because it's like quite apart from what you, you make of the, the tactic itself and, and its merits, right? Like, like even, even sort of shelving that, that whole discussion, uh, if for no other reason than I've lost a lot of my life and I'll never get back, you know, talking about it. You know? Uh, like, uh, whatever you think about that, I think it is really telling that there were so many people, you know, certainly at least in the online left, uh, among the the sort of the people I think of as um, uh, as fans of online leftist content, you know, folks uh, that uh, Mm -hmm. a lot of the folks uh, were uh, were willing to just completely write each other off over a fairly minor. Like a parliamentary procedure debate. Yeah, yeah, exactly. A debate about whether to use a particular kind of parliamentary procedural, you know, tactic that like, you know, like that, that like, yeah, would have been like a blip in the news cycle if it had happened. Yeah. We don't need to end friendships over this. Like this is. Yeah, you would think so. Right. But like, but so many people were precisely willing to uh, willing to do that. We're just infuriated with each other over it. And. And I think, in a way, actually, I think that example is really sad uh, because it both shows a lot of like what all of these these tendencies that I'm talking about uh, can can lead to, you know, because because so much of that was about like this sort of really moralistic evaluation of of individuals, right? You know, like like it really was that like that that Adolf Reed line, you know, like it's like sorting out the you know who's going to heaven from who's going to hell. Um, that, you know, all of these sort of shrill denunciations of people, you know, who had the wrong position on this parliamentary tactic. Uh, but, um, but it was also, I think what makes it particularly tragic is that it was a symptom of something that's not entirely bad, or certainly at least is very understandable, which is that as that Bernie moment was fading away, people are casting around for something they can do to try to have some kind of kind of impact in the on like the real world political process in ways that advance something we care about like medicare for all you know which which is certainly you know something we all care very deeply about uh and and so it's like in a way it's like a really healthy instinct you know that's like oh come on let's 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 find you know out of what's left right like like what can we get from yeah. the, the rubble that we can turn into something that could actually tilt the needle in our direction uh, but it's that's like a healthy instinct that was that was just channeled in this this incredibly self-destructive way. I think it's a really perfect encapsulation of that of the problem that we have right now on the left. So the people, some of the people that propelled themselves to the top of that uh, effort, 
also were simultaneously uh, decrying DSA at large because DSA like officially wouldn't endorse that that one single tactic, um, which led to cries, oh, you don't want Medicare for all. You don't want us to have health care. It's like some of these people, I literally knocked doors with you in Nevada for Bernie because we wanted health care. What are you fucking talking about? <laughs> like literally, like we went to the same canvassing spot. What are you talking about? Um, and yeah. and I thought it was really disingenuous, but also shows Damn that like, Jordan, these how people- much longer do you want me to wait for health care? Yeah, I, I, you know, but the thing, their end result was still not getting it. They wanted a failed floor yeah. vote. They still wouldn't have even gotten it. What are they talking about? It would have been a two to one no vote, <laughs> yeah. which, which yeah. it was always a big part of my problem with this. That I don't understand why anybody thinks that a two to one defeat in a Democratic controlled House would have led to more momentum, not less. Uh, well, that was the argument of like, oh, well, then we're going to know exactly who's against this. But it's like, don't we already kind of know about this? No, like, we, we, we it's do, not a secret. We do already know because there's, there's a co-sponsor <laughs> list. And at this point, yeah. that, that list has has like, what is 118 names on it? I mean, I think you could like pretty... <laughs> I like 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 I think at this point, like I understand this is not normally true for most legislation that the fact that somebody hasn't co-sponsored it tells you that they're against it. But in this particular case, this has been front and center in the debate within the Democratic Party for the last five years. It's accumulated, you know, we've gotten up to the point where there there are like there's like half of the Democratic caucus in the House has co-sponsored this thing. I think at this point the fact that somebody's not on that co-sponsor list is a pretty good indication that they don't support Medicare for all. Mm-hmm. Yep. It yeah. seems like that way to me, yeah. And actually, by the way, I know you're going to pivot away from this, but I, I just can't help say, like, this is also um, this idea that, like, the left as it exists right now is in any position to, to primary, like, hundreds of people at once, which is what we'd be talking about, is, mm-hmm. like, not, you know, whatever, like, a hundred people at once, you know, like, is it, just bizarre, right? I mean, we obviously don't have that logistical capacity, like, that's so... It's like no. the, this idea that you're going to, oh, now we know who to primary as if there weren't plenty of people who yeah. like like as if we didn't know who the like shitty centrists were in Congress, you know, that like that we're just yeah. like, oh, we've already won primaries against all the people that we know were against us. But now we just like some are hiding and we just need to mop those up, you know, like that. That just seems like a really weird understanding of what the situation is. Totally. And and an example of that is that they just didn't understand the role of mass organizing that led people to criticize DSA as as an extension of this fight, which I thought was absolutely ludicrous. You're not going to win. So you're not going to have socialism. You're not going to have any sort of mass, um, you know, populist movement without mass organizing. So to decry what is becoming the largest uh, mass, like local grassroots organizing effort on the left is is naive and self-serving so i think it's there's some charlatans that kind of use that moment to propel themselves and promote their personal brands to the detriment uh, of the overall like leftist uh, movement so I, I i hated that entire cycle as we we alluded to rob and i just kind of had a meh take on it and people still got upset i just think that there's a lot of hysterics involved um and and a, just a real lack of understanding around what possibilities uh, that even presented what likely outcomes there were. They're being misled, um, and I, I think it's great that you have that energy. I would encourage you to just fucking get involved, uh, get involved in like IWW or DSA or whatever. Uh, that's just it's 
screaming online at Ryan Grimm is not going to get socialism. I'm sorry. No, like, it's just, it's not, it's not how you get it. It's, it's not. And, and I think that part of like, I think that part of the resistance here, and this is a bitter pill to swallow is just sort of coming to terms with how high the mountain that we need to climb here really is. Um, yep. Because people are very unsatisfied if you say like, okay, well, what's what's your plan, smart guy? What do you want me to do? And you say, I don't know, you know, join DSA, being, you know, like do canvassing, you know, like give money to the, you know, national nurses unions, you know, Medicare for all efforts, uh, you know, do like, you know, like when there actually are opportunities to, to really win primaries, you know, like get involved in those. Uh, because all of that stuff really smacks of like a very long and drawn out process, which which for understandable reasons, a lot of people hate. But I, I think that's something we're going to have to come to terms with. I mean, I've, I've kind of seen the same thing just in the last week after the defeat in Bessemer, Alabama, you know, with the, the Amazon unionization effort that like I, I think I think that people get excited about like oh what's the like thing that's going on right this second that sounds sort of promising and i i'm starting to worry more and more about like kind of burnout and demoralization you know because um because if you are expecting you know if you're expecting like quick victories uh then you know it's it's very easy to just go the other way and get blackpilled when they don't happen and it's it's just like you gotta you gotta just settle in for for a very long fight here if if you want to stay in yeah well yeah. that's why i thought a bit of that was disingenuous as well because it's just like it's adding an extra unnecessary step in between like doing the really legitimately hard work of organizing that has to be done in order to win these big reforms. And it's like, it's kind of giving yourself a way out. It's like, well, we're going to begin that work once we force them to do this parliamentary uh, move. Then we're going to be able to do this big thing. We're going to be able to start organizing and getting on board with and primary all these people. But it's like, you know, like we were pointing out, we, you already know the people that you need to go after. You know what needs to be done. But then when they, when they don't do this move that you're insisting they need to do, then you can just kind of complain about that and insist that that's the reason why it's it's not possible to do any of this stuff instead of just like, you know, jumping in and starting to do the extremely hard work of, of building uh, social movements that you need to do in order to pass that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we need um, like and, and again, it's 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 really it's it's a really difficult long term thing. I mean, we need to uh, if you're going to actually win some of these fights, you know, to 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 get these important reforms like like Medicare for all, which, you know, I mean, look, it's it's depressing. That that's even you know such a uh, uh, that that's like such a such a high mountain to climb because like it, you know this is really a, a very incremental social democratic baby step I and mean, we're you know saying like you know we'll we'll have you know like like we'll finally get what you know what you've had in Canada for you know for decades uh, in an you know imperfect and incomplete form I understand but still yeah right you know I was about to yeah I was about to correct you on that. <laughs> But yeah. yes, yes. Yeah, it, it doesn't cover everything and you know but like yeah. but you know, in in a basic sense, like I mean they they you know, like like this this has been achieved. Uh, you know, this has been achieved there, you know, and, and whatever. I mean I grew up right by the Canadian border. I'm under no illusions that Canada is some sort of like advanced utopian place, you know, but like if if, <laughs> if you can get like if you can get public health care, we should be able to get that too. Yeah, well, I mean, that was one of the exact reasons that I and many others were supporting Bernie, because, like, 
if Bernie's proposal for Medicare for all would have made the Canadian healthcare system look like absolute shit in comparison. And because our leaders in Canada so often like use the low bar of America to sort of justify our own very inadequate status quo here. And, uh, you know, that would have been a great excuse for people on the left in Canada to start pressuring our leaders to say like, look, even fucking America is now beating us at this. Can we finally like improve the system or make it better? Um, so yeah, that it would have had huge international repercussions as well. Ben, I wanted to ask you about um, I wanted to ask you about AOC. You mentioned the squad, and this is kind of this has become like another kind of hot button issue, especially on the online left in the post Bernie era. And I, I'm finding it kind of tricky because I do feel like she is subject to a whole lot of really bad faith uh, attacks. Um, I see her out there right now. She's basically acting as a cheerleader for the Biden agenda and trying to get the left on board, which I understand is somewhat depressing. Um, but I also see like Bernie doing the exact same thing and him not really getting anywhere near the same level of vitriol. So I think there's kind of a tricky line where you have to separate the the bad faith attacks from like the genuine criticisms. And that's the thing is I do find that she has made some pretty troubling uh, statements and made some troubling moves in the last couple of weeks, particularly when it comes to like foreign policy issues. Um, what's your stance on that? And like, do you think, um, like, what do you think about where she sort of situated herself in the post-Bernie era? And what do you make of some of the ways that she's been kind of subject to these constant attacks? Because like I said, I think I think it's a very easy sort of brand building exercise online to be like, I'm great. And, and AOC is just a neoliberal or whatever, which I find very reductive. Um, and ultimately, I find it I find that kind of obscures the very real criticisms that we can and should make over over sort of progressive Democratic Party politicians like AOC uh, or other members of the squad. Yeah, I think I all that's right. I mean, I, I think that she's she's not a neoliberal. I think that's a ridiculous thing to say. Uh, I, I think that in terms of her, you know, policy commitments, you know, she's a very solid social democrat, um, and and you know, not very different, you know, from from Bernie in in that sense at least. Uh, I, I mean, I think that you know the thing that you kind of touched on that I, I definitely would criticize AOC for, uh, and also Bernie. Right. As you mentioned, uh, is that both of them and I think it manifests in slightly different ways. And I kind of get why AOC is a little bit more of a lightning rod for this criticism. But I think it is true in both cases uh, that they have adopted this sort of very like junior partner in a coalition kind of approach, like like strategy, you know, for for achieving uh, reforms uh, that uh, basically. You know, it's the sort of thing, like, if you read, like, The Nation magazine, you know, like, a lot of writers there, you know, like, this is very much their approach, you know, to left politics um, that, you know, sees, uh, like, really, like, what you do on this approach is that you're a, a very loyal foot soldier for the Democratic Party and you kind of, um, and you play up anything that looks like Biden moving to the left and then you sort of quietly lobby for going further. And and you and you you advocate, you know, for things, of course, that go beyond that. But I mean, that's but, you know, you see this as like the the, the kind of path to uh, to achieving uh, reforms that uh, that this is like the thing that we you know, that you think that we need to do in order to like sort of have a seat at the table in order to uh, to pressure uh, the uh, the Biden administration in in a better way. And I, I, I think that's actually a fairly popular approach it's one i definitely disagree with but it's a very popular approach on a lot of the left right now and i actually wrote something uh about 
uh, about it for uh, for Jacobin. I think like right after, like I think maybe the day Biden was inaugurated, uh, it's called uh, "Get Ready to Fight Joe Biden," uh, where I kind of talk about this approach and and my problem with it. And I think that's a bad approach, right? Like I I don't think that's gonna I don't think that's gonna deliver the goods. I think that you need to actually be sort of doing the opposite, which is I don't think we need to worry about pressuring Biden. I don't think that should be the primary focus is like pressuring Biden, which is actually a place where I disagree both with the AOC approach and also with uh, the sort of approach that a lot of the, you know, the um, uh, force the vote enthusiasts have, uh, which, you know, which is still ultimately about exerting pressure. Right. It's just uh, it's just like a more hardball approach to exerting pressure. In both cases, I think it's a little bit beside the point because I just don't think that we can like we can't. I don't think that there's any scenario whereby we pressure Biden into governing like Bernie Light. Right. I I just don't think that's going to happen. I I think that what we need to do is to draw contrasts between what we want and what the Biden administration and the Democrats in Congress are willing to do. Uh, at every pot, at every opportunity, we need to draw those contrasts so that we can win more of those primaries as time goes on, and build up a stronger force. You know that that can, in combination with you know rebuilding the labor movement, which as we just saw in Bessemer is also an incredibly high mountain to climb. Uh, that you know that we can we can actually achieve these things for ourselves, not by somehow begging or pressuring or cajoling or tricking, you know, the uh, the centrists into, uh, into doing it for them. So I do agree with that criticism of AOC, although I also agree with you that it's also very much a criticism of, uh, of Bernie. You know, I, I think that the AOC gets more shit about it, uh, partially because of like stylistic differences between her and Bernie, but also partially because AOC's political rhetoric is, I think, pretty different for Bernie in certain ways. Because, and and I think in ways that like do kind of limit her potential as like a sort of figurehead or leadership figure for for a effective version of the left going forward, um, which by which I just mean that like one of the best things about Bernie was that you know he was and is you know able to appeal to a lot of people who wouldn't necessarily you know even like bother to to vote or maybe might even vote for Republicans sometimes, you know, that like uh, that Bernie is somebody who is very good at sort of centering bread and butter issues in uh, in a way that got a lot of people excited and and that like and and that also managed to give off the vibe, even though you're totally right that, you know, especially since the primary is over, he has been very like junior partner in a coalition. But he still oftentimes, especially when he's running for president, managed to give off the vibe of relative independence from both parties. Uh, and and I think the problem with AOC is that she speaks a kind of language of a certain kind of like woke intersectional sort of version of uh, of left liberal politics uh, that is like basically, and I'm not talking about the content of any of the positions that she advocates. I mean, the positions that she advocates are, with some exceptions on foreign policy, like you mentioned, mostly great. Uh, but uh, but I'm talking about her her rhetorical language, and and I think the language that she speaks is something that only appeals 
to um, to people who are who are already very thoroughly on on a sort of progressive side of a lot of culture war, you know, of of sort of culture war polarization, um, and and that that is pretty that is pretty limiting, and so I, I understand why people sort of react to that. They react to uh, to some things that she says that are sort of very. Uh, raw expressions of that kind of junior partner approach to left politics, you know, like like you know that thing where she called Pelosi "mama bear," uh, and uh, that was an ideal. Yeah, it's That's not cool. ideal. I say I say the same thing. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we call Nancy around the office. It's, it's Chuck Schumer. I call him Papa Bear. There we go. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I mean, it's 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 not great, and you know, and and I also get like. I'm not crazy about it when she she like made that comment, you know, during Force the Vote, uh, where she was talking about, you know, people saying like really like overheated, harsh things about her, uh, which is true, which happened. And I don't like that either. But like, you know, she used the word violence in describing it. And, you know, I don't love that either. Right. I don't think that's helpful. Mm-hmm. So. So, I mean, mm. I, none of that's to say fuck AOC. I mean, I was I was incredibly excited when AOC was elected. Uh, I, I mean, I remember I, I was out with um, this will be a deep cut for anybody who remembers left Twitter a few years ago. But somebody I knew from DSA, he had a uh, his Twitter handle was uh, uh, website Larry. Oh, yeah, Christian. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I was out with Christian at a bar in Michigan. And, uh, you know, like we, we were watching, you know, when uh, like the TV coverage, you know, when AOC was first elected and, you know, and and and. Uh, and, and I just remember being like over the moon about it and like driving him back and, you know, uh, to uh, to his apartment where he was staying then and like uh, playing, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the the red flag, you know, the uh, the British socialist song over and over again, you know, talking about it. <laughs> uh, but um, but I but I and I still right. Like, I mean, if I don't think this going to happen, but I mean, if like in 2022, like that congressional seat that, that she has, you know, in the Bronx was like somehow under threat, you know, like that there was going to be a serious primary challenge and that she might actually lose. Uh, if that happened, I'm sure I'd give some money to her campaign, you know, like like I, I, I think that I, I have some real criticisms of her. Right. There are some things about her that, that I really do have issues with. But also, like, bottom line, is she a net positive you know, being in Congress, of course she is. I mean, she's 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 a uh, she's somebody who is is going to uh, to be you know a uh, a representative. You know, she's going to be an advocate for for all of the policy positions uh, that we that we care about more or less. She's somebody you know. She she did that thing in um, twenty twenty on Martin Luther King Day where uh, she was at that event with uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates and she said uh, that uh, that if Jeff Bezos uh, was starting this like charity and she said if Jeff Bezos wants to be a good person forget the money you know he should uh, uh, he should give up his power and you know turn Amazon into a worker cooperative uh, like like it, it would have been unimaginable that a city member of Congress yeah. would have said something like that like six years ago right that that that's that that would have been totally outside of the realm of possibilities so i i think that she's like a very imperfect messenger in a lot of ways uh but uh but i also think that she's a she's a net positive and and bottom line and this you know unfortunately does take us back to the force the vote stuff uh we're we're not going to you know the least useful thing you can do is spread the message 
that the tiny handful of people the left currently has in Congress don't really count or aren't worth supporting because the only way we're ever going to achieve the things that we need to achieve is if is if instead of a squad of like a you know half dozen or people or whatever it's up to now, we have a squad of like two hundred people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I try to just ignore that kind of stuff for the most part because it's not really helpful i'd rather have her than joe crowley i'd rather have ilhan than any- i want ilhan more than anybody else i want like a hundred ilhans um i think she's 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 great and she uh has been leading the charge on uh the saudi blockade in, in yemen which has been great but that's a, an example of your point where aoc might lack some some of the more strong foreign policy takes I've, i had heard from a friend her general silence on this and very late addition to the letter that Pocan's office circulated demanding an end to U.S. support for the Saudi uh, coalition of blockade um, was because she had a very she has a very vocal um, constituents that support um, the Saudis in that in that front and in that effort. So to kind of I, I think it's it's also reflected in some of her comments that made people upset this week over Israel and Palestine. It's just she kind of equivocates a lot of stuff. And I think she sometimes is tepid to make a declarative stance, especially on foreign policy issues. She just kind of defers to, oh, well, it's complicated, and then gets into this this word salad that just leaves everybody feeling um, misled and and frustrated and upset. Uh, This isn't to say I think she she shouldn't be in Congress. I mean, if someone even more progressive comes in, let's 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 support them. That's what this ultimate effort should be. It's finding the most left people that we can get into Congress, not personalities, not brands, not whomever. It's just how do we make progress and, and continue uh, advancing on this front? And I think it's it's very easy to get caught up in kind of the cults of personality. Well, that's probably a good way to tie it back into the point of your book, right? Yeah. Which is that um, really when we're talking about building political power, that's that means building a coalition. And that doesn't mean a coalition of people that 100% agree on every yeah, single subject. You know, that that is something that's a pipe dream. That's something that will never, ever happen. But something that is kind of vaguely realistic is putting together an actual coalition of people that have a couple of disparate views about certain things, maybe some things you don't agree with, but ultimately are going to pull in the same direction when it comes to doing positive things. Right. And that's that, you know, that's the approach that I think people should probably be trying to support um, and not this idea of like everyone has to be in perfect lockstep and anyone that steps out of this needs to be immediately jettisoned from the from the coalition or, or, or question in that way you know yeah I, I mean if like if you have a coalition where everybody agrees on everything that that's like just by definition that's not a coalition right like that that's just a yeah. you know i don't know like a uh that's 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 like a faction maybe but it's not a coalition uh and yeah i, I mean i i think that that's i think that that's exactly uh exactly right you know that we that uh that if you're if you're going to to achieve anything right you know that then you you need to uh, you know, you need to have the uh, the support of of lots of people. You know, who are flawed and uh, uh, in in lots of ways, and you know, and and you need to be much less focused on that than you know than you are about you know what it, what it is that you're trying to uh, to to accomplish together. I mean, I, I think that um, you know, I mean, I, I we can spend lots of time, uh, you know. If arguing about you know about all of these these issues and some of the things that you're talking about are actually extremely important, although also you know sense of perspective um, 
even though I, you know, even though I don't love, uh, you know, her her extremely wishy washy comments about Palestine, uh, I also don't think that realistically, um, you know, the um, uh, one of one of like the the six you know far leftists in in Congress uh, has much impact you know on American policy you right. know, towards Palestine, uh, you know that so. The question is always, what's the, um, you know, what's the alternative? I mean, if somebody, um, you know, somebody was running against her who uh, was exactly as good as she was on everything else and was much better on that. And there was no danger that, like, you know, having that, you know, would like throw the seat to a centrist then maybe we can talk, uh, you know, but but if not, you know, then, then she's, she's definitely, uh, you know, she's definitely part, you know, part of that coalition. And uh, and I think that we need to whether we're talking about like any of the things that we're trying to achieve, whether that be like healthcare, or free in Palestine, uh, or uh, or anything else, you know, like I I think like a lot less focus on on the people, right? A, a lot less focus on on what's in people's hearts, or or whether they're good people or bad people, or whether they're truly committed, or you know what are all the problematic things that they've said, and a lot more focus on uh, what we want to happen in the world and how we're going to get there would be really good. Great, Ben. Well, it was, it was great to have you on the show this week. Thank you for joining us um, and explaining, uh, breaking some of this stuff down for us. Why don't you just, uh, before we say goodbye, let everyone know uh, where they can buy the book and where they can find your work online before we sign off here. Yep. Uh, so uh, they can buy the book. You know, it's it comes out on May first, uh, but uh, it's available right now for pre-order at uh, all of the you know usual places you could pre-order books online. But uh, my suggestion would be to pre-order it from Red Emma's, which is a worker-owned bookstore in Baltimore. Great restaurant too. Mm-hmm. Uh, order books from online, so that's uh, redemmas.org, uh, uh, and then uh, the uh, the rest of you know everything else, you know, one stop shop uh, would be uh, benburgess.com. Nice. It's the first Red Emma's re- uh, reference on here. I, I, I like I like that place a lot. Very nice. Well, thanks a lot, Ben. We'll we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, man. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Insurgents. Please remember to subscribe over at theinsurgents.substack.com. Find the podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. And please remember to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It's very helpful and we appreciate it a lot. But please, again, don't mention Ken Klippenstein in the review. He is banned from the show. It's a lifetime ban. So please do not mention him in the review. And we'll be back later this week with more of the content that you know and love. Goodbye.